About two weeks ago, uh, coming up on two weeks ago, I had to fly to California uh, for some meetings with a friend of mine from seminary. And I had this great plan, right? You have a plan when you go on a four and a half hour flight. Going to clear out emails because nobody can email me when I'm on the plane. Get some reading done. I'm going to prep for all of these meetings. Great plan. And then I got to the airport and looked at my boarding pass in the seat 22E. Well, if you fly enough, you know that that means middle aisle, or middle, not on the aisle, cramped seat, behind the wing, so it's loud, and when you don't have noise-canceling headphones, that's a problem. And I tried to concentrate for an hour, and it was not working. So I turned on the in-flight Wi-Fi and watched sitcoms for the rest of the flight across the country. And I find that sitcoms fall into basically two types. There's the ones that are centered around family, and you can go all the way back to the honeymooners or whatever and think about that. And then there's the sitcoms that are centered around friends, right? And it's even in those family-centered sitcoms, it's the relationships with friends that often is where the humor lies. And I noticed that since maybe the 90s, most sitcoms lean toward the friends types. And if you think about it, you could name a few of those pretty easily. Seinfeld, most famous, I don't know, Friends, maybe, uh, which is very popular on Netflix right now. And just this past year, The Big Bang Theory, which was centered around four nerd physicist friends, ended. And we watch sitcoms because they make us laugh. They let us unwind. And... Truth be told, because at least we're not like those friends. Because, let's face it, would you want George Costanza as your best friend? I don't, I don't think so. But every once in a while, on those sitcoms even, you run into a situation where friends have the hard conversations, right? The conversations that no one really wants to have, but we need to have. They're uncomfortable, but they allow us to maybe reset and reorient our lives. And I don't know about you, but I tend to think about Jesus as having disciples, having followers, but friends is not the first thing that comes to mind. You know, those people that he hangs out with because he wants to, not because he has to. The people he does life with. But... He does have them. And as we continue on our series on conversations with Jesus, today we're going to look at a hard conversation that Jesus has with one of his closest friends. A conversation that tells us that Jesus is the kind of friend we really want and maybe being a disciple and being a friend aren't so different. So if you turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, we're going to look at one of the most famous Stories from all of the Gospels, the story of Mary and Martha. And this is how it goes. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You're worried, about, worried and upset about many things. 
But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, for what it teaches us about you, for what it teaches you teaches us about how you want us to be in this world. And I pray that this morning we would learn a little bit more about both who you are and what you would have from, from us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> it's really easy if we just read this passage quickly and just this passage to miss the close relationship that Jesus has with Mary and Martha. But we know that this friendship is close. If we look at John chapter 11, we read the story of the death of Lazarus. And we realize that Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. This is the famous passage where Jesus weeps, right? The, the, the shortest verse in the Bible. And in John 11 verse 2, we're introduced to Mary as the woman who pours perfume on Jesus. And we're told in verse 5 that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are among Jesus' closest friends. And I think that this makes this conversation all the more important. But this is a really short passage, right? There's not much in the way of detail in here. And so because of that, some of the things that we think are in here maybe aren't, And it's really easy to read into this passage things that aren't there. And we inadvertently end up reading the story of Mary and Martha wrong. And I think there are three ways that we tend to misread the story. Um, It's easy to fall into these traps because there's a grain of truth in each one of these misreadings. And the first is what I call fight night. Mary versus Martha. You can almost hear the boxing announcer in the background, you know, let's get ready to rumble. And we tend to read this story as a personality conflict story, right? Mary versus Martha, the favorite versus the one who does. Or between the good girl and the irresponsible girl. Or maybe if we think that Luke's account of the woman anointing to Jesus refers to Mary as a sinner. It's the good girl versus the bad girl. And the problem, of course, is that this story upends all kinds of things, and it's really hard to know who's who. But it's not a surprising mistake to make, because after all, Jesus tells Martha, there's really only one choice to make, and Mary's made it. And so, often, we say, Martha chose the good instead of the better or the best. And that's true. But what isn't true is making this choice a contest between people. Who's better? Who's more spiritual? What are the real spiritual gifts and then the ones that we all can have? And Jesus never pits Mary versus Martha in that way as a personality Clash. He's not picking sides. And too often, we look at it this way. Ladies, I don't know, but I'm willing to bet that at some point or another, you have, if you've been around church for any length of time, you have thought, I am Mary or I am Martha. Maybe the comparison came up in a book or a conference or something. I do not know how many times that I have heard my mother 
call herself Martha. I got to tell you, no guy has ever thought this. Okay? It's not happening. But guys, we need to be warned because the, the temptation that we have is to say that's a woman's issue, whatever that means. And that's not right because we all play comparison games, right? We, as humans, do this. And we need to stop reading into this passage that that's what this is about because it's not there. So the second way we misread this is we say stop all the busyness, right? And this is maybe even easier as far as mistakes go. We read it quickly and we hear Jesus saying to Martha, hey, stop doing. That's the problem. And it's really easy to think that because it sounds right. And I think that for churches like ours, sort of the the American evangelical conservative Bible-believing church, we have another reason why we tend to read it this way. Because we want to make sure that people don't believe that what they do saves them. Right? It's a legitimate concern. And in the early 20th century, there was a great deal of American Christianity that really emphasized doing. Do, do, do. And lots of that doing included really good things. Taking care of people and stuff. But, but there were entire denominations in a large segment of the American church that believed in something called the social gospel. And basically it taught that Christianity had to adopt and adapt to the modern world. To leave all of the superstition and the supernatural behind and stick with the kernel of Christianity, the kernel truth, and simplifying in the extreme, that meant doing good things for humanity. And the, the thought went that Christianity found its ultimate fulfillment, its true form in helping others and in leaving all the supernatural stuff behind. And that was the path to God. Conservative churches, Orthodox churches, rebelled against this notion and said, no, all of the Bible is true. Every last bit of it. Even the supernatural stuff you want to get rid of. And so... The churches we would tend to call fundamentalists rose up in opposition to what this compromise was all about. But here's the, the other part of that story. Up until that point, churches that we would call fundamentalists were doing all sorts of good works. Soup kitchens and helping the homeless and shelters and you name it. And they were doing it. Until this time, and they say, you know what? We can't be identified with those people. We can't be identified with the theological liberals. And so they stopped doing. And they pulled away from the world. And they said, Mary, not Martha. Stop the busyness. And of course, evangelicalism came along and said, wait, you can't, you're, you can't pull out from the world. And it was a corrective. But still, for a lot of us, it's really hard to overcome that urge to separate. To not be like them, whoever they are. To be pure. And by pure, we mean believe the right things. Works don't save. And it's true. But it's also true, John 3 tells us, that Jesus came to save everyone, not just the people 
who agree with us. And most commentators will tell us that this story at the end of Luke chapter 10 is intentionally placed where it's at because what happens immediately before it? It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that's a story all about doing. The lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I'm doing pretty good, right? I keep all the commandments, I do all the right things, I've got it together, I get eternal life, right? And what does Jesus do? He says, how do you read the law? Sum it up. Love God, love my neighbor. Jesus says, you're right, go live that way. And the lawyer says, I'm probably really not, so I got it, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a parable to expand the viewpoint of who the neighbor is. Right? It's a bigger category than we tend to make it. Although, for most of us in the 21st century, starting with our actual neighbor may not be a bad thing to do. But the Samaritan doesn't believe the right things. He doesn't worship the right way. He's not a real Jew. Or we might say he isn't a Bible-believing Christian. He doesn't go to the right church. Maybe he doesn't go to church at all. He doesn't believe in the same kind of God. But Jesus says that guy, the wrong guy, is acting out the law, is behaving more Christianly than the people who know better. And Jesus says, live like that. He literally says, live like that in the verse before this story. So we know that Jesus is not saying to Martha, don't do, because he just got through saying, live that way. There's more going on here. Think about this. Where did Martha's busyness come from? I can tell you where it came from. Twelve guys, plus one, just showed up unannounced and are now crashing in her living room. They're hot and tired from a long walk. They're getting dust everywhere on her clean furniture that's not as clean as it should have been because no one told her they were coming. And oh wait, they gotta eat and I gotta take care of that and you see where the spiral came from, right? She's doing things that are necessary. The issue is not doing, it's her approach and we're gonna get to that in a minute. And I think that by putting the Good Samaritan story in Mary and Martha's conversation, Martha's conversation with Jesus right next to each other, Luke highlights two problems. On the one hand, it's not doing the right thing when we need to do it. And on the other hand, it's letting doing consume us. And both are easy mistakes to make. If you think about it this way, when you learn to drive, everyone has the same problem. It's called overcorrection, right? You drift in one direction and you pull back too far in the other direction. And it takes a while to figure out how to just do it enough that you stay in the lane, which is the point. And it's the same issue here. If you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, that passage grounds our faith in the person and work of Jesus. It says he pays our penalty. Clearly, works don't save us. But it also says we have to hold on to the hope that we possess and that we have to consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Doing is important. 
What we believe and what we do, they're not opposed, they have to go together. Third misreading, and this is the flip side of the previous one. This is what I like to call me and Jesus. The thinking goes, well, if Mary made the right choice and she's with Jesus, then all I need is me and Jesus time. You know, here's my quiet time, here's the devotional I do, I read, you know, I'm in my one-year Bible reading program, or whatever. And so we inadvertently reduce Christianity to a session with a spiritual life coach. And, and this is not a new problem. In the Middle Ages, Mary was held up as sort of the paragon of the contemplative life. It's the same mistake. It's a mistake that has a lot of appeal for us. <laughs> Lifeway Research just released a study about discipleship in the United States. And it said that most of us don't connect well with others or think that we really need anyone else to be a disciple. When Christianity Today reported on this, their headline was this, In Christ Alone, Most Believers Say They Don't Need Others for Discipleship. And I think that distills this misreading of Mary and Martha. Because that's not what Jesus is saying here to Martha. And it doesn't fit Luke's picture of Jesus either. Again, we can look at that Good Samaritan passage, or we can turn the page to Luke 11, and he has another interesting conversation. He's invited to the home of a Pharisee for dinner. And he compares in it the Pharisees to a cup that's been washed on the outside and it's dirty on the inside. Looks good, but nobody wants to drink from it. And you know what Jesus says to correct that, to clean out the cup? He says, give gifts to the poor. And he goes on and he says, yes, tithe. Do the religious thing. You should be doing that. But don't forget justice. What you believe and what you do matter. So me and Jesus doesn't reflect that. And it doesn't reflect this conversation in another way. Verse 38 in our passage says that Jesus was with his disciples. So there are at least 12 people plus Mary with Jesus. This is not a her and Jesus alone thing. And if you go back to the beginning of Luke 10, Jesus had sent out 72 disciples to preach and teach. So we really don't know how many people are with Jesus at this point, but we know it's not just Jesus and Mary. One last word about reading the story wrong before we move on to reading it right. And I think it encompasses all three of these mistakes. You see, we all have this tendency to pit ourselves against others. And sometimes we pick people that we think are spiritually better than us, and sometimes we think are spiritually worse than us. And we play this comparison game. And we need to stop. It's not helpful and it's really not the point of this passage. Because God created us differently, created us in different re ways for different reasons. And some of us tend to be doers and some of us tend to be thinkers. And we can categorize people in lots of different ways. Introverts and extroverts, task-oriented people and people-oriented people. And maybe if you're into personality tests, DISC or Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram, which is so popular today, 
I can't say it enough that this is not a personality conflict. That's not what this passage is. It's not saying one kind of person is better or more spiritual than the other. And yes, knowing our own tendencies is a good thing because it can help us where we stumble or tend to stumble and the ways we tend to contribute. An illustration. I took that flight to California to meet with my friend Jeff. We were roommates in seminary. And Jeff is an activist. And I mean literally he's an activist. Back at the height of the recession in 2008 and 2009, the Central Valley of California was hit harder than anywhere in the country. And Jeff's city, Modesto, California, got hit terribly hard. And he was a pastor at a church. And he saw the cracks in society and government was cutting staff. And they weren't able to provide all the resources that they had. And he said, the church isn't doing what it needs to do to help the community. So he started doing. And Love Modesto and Love Our Cities was born because Jeff can't not do. That's who he is. And the good that they have been doing in their town, in their city about the size of Aurora, because of their faith, is frankly amazing. And they don't always get it right. And Jeff will be the first to tell you that you need to stop and listen before you just jump in. But he brought me out to California because he needed help telling his story so he can help more people. And I'm the guy who asks the questions and looks for the patterns and says, this is how you tell your story. We needed each other. Because let me tell you, left to my own devices... I am much less likely to do the things I need to do. And his passion inspires me to step up. And God didn't make us all the same for a reason. You see, Mary and Martha are sisters. They are not enemies. They're not competing for Jesus' attention. So let's start reading this story right. This is not an exhaustive list, but I see three things at least going on here. The first... Friends matter. How many of you have people that, or how many people could you show up at their door with 12 people and it's going to be okay? You're unannounced, right? Jesus knew he could drop in on Mary and Martha with 12 guys and it's not going to be a problem. Hospitality mattered, but friendship mattered, even to Jesus. And Martha feels close enough to Jesus that she complains to him. If her relationship was distant, if Jesus is just the famous preacher coming through town, she's not going to complain to him the way that she does, right? We don't do that. You complain like that to people you're close to. A friend like that matters and makes a difference in our spiritual lives. In America, we have problems making friends. Lots of studies that I've seen in the last year say that we feel lonely and left out as a country. One study said that 45% of Americans say it is hard to make friends and that the average American hasn't made a new friend in five years. And it's really easy to get isolated You get up in the morning, you get ready for work, you get the kids off to school, 
go to the garage, garage door opener goes up, car backs out, drive to work, do your thing, leave, go home, garage door opener, pull in, close, go inside. And if you're like me and you work from home, it's even easier to be isolated. I've been reading a a book lately about being a neighbor. And uh, in it, the author set up a grid of boxes and it's going to come up. Your house is in the middle. Okay? So just think of it this way. Across the street, people behind you, people on either side. Not everybody has it exactly that way, but it works. Line A. What is the name of the person in that house? Line B. What is something about that person that is more than they drive a red car, right? you got to actually talk to them to, to get just basic details. And line C is something important about their lives. What do they care about? What are their dreams or their hopes? And this is what the authors found. They've done this all across the, the country. Okay? It's kind of depressing. 10% of us can fill out line A. 3% of us can fill out line B. And less than 1% of us can fill out line C. And I got to say, I'm not in the 10%. I'm close, but I don't always match up the name to the person and I don't know all of the names. And I bring this up because What would happen to my block or my town if I could fill that out? You see, friendships matter. Hospitality matters, and not just in sitcoms. If you turn to John 15 for a minute, you're going to see what I mean. In verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because servants do not know their master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in the name of my Father, in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Jesus elevates love, elevates being friends with us, calling us his friends, not followers, but friends. And I think we cannot underestimate this at all. We need to be this. Second thing that we can learn reading this right, be anxious for nothing. When Jesus confronts Martha in her complaint, what does he do? He says, Martha, you're worried about, you're upset about all the details. You're anxious. And the real issue isn't that Martha is doing all the things. She is being hospitable here. The big issue 
is her anxiety, her attitude. And she let a good thing distract her from the best thing. It drug her away from being with Jesus. She was so busy about this stuff, doing stuff for Jesus, that she was not spending time with Jesus. And when we live that way, the good things that we do, and I really mean the good things, end up becoming bad. I believe very strongly that the devil's primary strategy for getting Christians off track is not to tempt us to do bad things out of the gate. I mean, sometimes it is, but for the most part, that's not the strategy. The strategy is to get us so consumed with doing good things that it pulls our eyes off of the best thing, which is Jesus. And when we do that, when we get consumed with those good things, you know what happens to us? We get overwhelmed, just like Martha. We get hopeless because we see how big the task is and we know we can't do it on our own. And so what happens? Then we become more vulnerable to attack than at any other point. You know why? Because we see, I can't get that done, so why am I continuing to do this? Why am I doing the good things? Why can't I go to that enticing bad thing? And if you think that's not real, then you haven't been paying attention to the headlines in the last 18 months of major pastors in the Chicago area falling. Paul tells us in Philippians 4.6 to be anxious for nothing. In every situation to present our request to God with thanksgiving. You know who else tells us not to be anxious all the time? Jesus does. Luke 12, 22 to 34, Jesus teaches his disciples not to worry. This is the famous passage about don't worry about food and clothing and shelter and the stuff that you have. Or in Matthew 10, when he tells his disciples, look, you're going to be arrested. You're going to go before kings. For me, don't be anxious because I'm going to give you what to say. And if we go back to Luke 12, 31, it says that we have to put God's kingdom first. And it's when we do that that all the other stuff, the things we need, get added. And when we focus on ourselves, even the good things that we are doing, maybe even the things God has called us to do, but we don't put Him first, that's when trouble starts. And that leads us to the third way that we can get this passage right, which is what discipleship looks like. Pastor Keith talked about discipleship, discover, develop, deploy disciples. Discipleship is a buzzword in churches, right? It smacks of the really spiritual person. I had a, a professor in college who, when he would talk about this way of thinking, he would put on a pseudo-British accent and, and talk about the spiritual people, right? The kind of puffed up people that are better than the rest of us. But if you notice what Jesus commends in this passage, that's not it. He commends what Mary did, the choice she made, the action of sitting at his feet, that is a posture of learning, of submitting to the authority of the spiritual teacher. It means that she's admitting, I don't have it all together and I need to learn and the way that I do that is to be with Jesus. You see, in the first century, 
followers of a rabbi spent all of their time with that person. Their goal was to be like that rabbi in every way they could. And you have to take time and exposure to do that. You have to be with. And here's the part where I get meddlesome. You can't be a disciple if the only time you spend with Jesus is on Sunday morning at church. You can't be a disciple from afar. You need up-close personal time in your off hours, at home. You need to submit your life to His. And if you think that Christianity is about believing the right things but not letting them affect your life, you're missing the point. Following Jesus, being his disciple, means that everything about you changes, gets exchanged for who he is. It means that being a Christian affects what you believe about God and what you do with that belief. It also means that he's going to reshape you into his image. It means that there's no area of your life that doesn't come under his purview. And it means, candidly, that if you come to church to be encouraged but never challenged in your day-to-day life, you have another thing coming. I recently um, heard Russell Moore talk about two preachers about preaching. And he said, if you read and study a passage and there's nothing about it that bothers you, then you need to go read it again because you don't have it right yet. It's going to challenge you. It also means you can't do it alone. Mary was with Jesus and the other disciples. She was not alone. And we don't know from this passage if Martha was alone or not, but it sure kind of seems that way. And it wasn't good for her. Jesus has to have a hard conversation with her about this. And that hard conversation, I think, reveals four radical implications. Things that we need to take with us to daily. The first is that friendship with Jesus means that he cares about us. Many times we talk about God using us. It's the only context I can think of where normal, ordinary people talk about someone using them and we're okay with it. And I agree. I, like, I use that phrase. I believe it. I want it to be true. But the danger is that we think about that and we forget that Jesus calls us his friends, that he cares about us. And the Gospels are full of accounts of Jesus being compassionate, that this being the way he is in the world. Matthew 14, he has compassion on the crowd and heals the sick. Matthew 20, he has compassion on two blind men and heals them. In Luke 7, he has compassion on a widow who is burying her son. And it we, we miss the significance of this. She is a widow. Her husband is gone. Her son is gone. This means she is destitute. There is no social safety net, right? All of her means of support are gone, and Jesus has compassion and raises a son from the dead. In Luke 19, he looks over Jerusalem in the week before his crucifixion, and he weeps, not for himself, but for them. And in Mark 6, 34, he has compassion on the people because they are sheep without a shepherd. This is who Jesus is. And this conversation takes that a step further. 
beyond a general compassion and makes it personal. Look, Martha's off base in this passage. But she did start by trying to honor Jesus. She cares about him. And when in verse 41, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, the commentators tell us that this is a sign of deep emotion, not condescension, not, come on, you should know better, but concern for Martha. He wants the greatest good for her, even when, and I would argue especially when, she's wrong. He's always concerned for the deepest needs we have. And he's more concerned than anyone else. So much so that he's willing to take even our wrong-headed complaints and not lambast us with them, but show us the error of our ways. And we need to remember that. Second, friendship with Jesus means being honest with him. And I love this part of the story, and I think it's one of the easiest things for us to overlook. Martha is so exasperated that she goes to Jesus and complains to him. She has no problem telling Jesus, hey, this is wrong. And that's what friends do. She's honest. It doesn't mean she's right. But she is close enough with Jesus that she can actually complain to Jesus and she's not worried about it. She can tell him what she thinks and what she feels, which are not always the same thing. And I have to ask, are we that honest with Jesus? Are we willing to speak truth to him? Or are we hiding behind those spiritual platitudes and cliches? Because God can take our questions. And he can take our wrong motivations and our doubts. He can take your anger and your frustration. But what he won't do is force you to. And he won't leave you alone either. Martha is honest with Jesus and because she's honest with Jesus he works in her life and doesn't let her stay where she's at and the question is are we willing to take that kind of risk are we willing to risk being honest with Jesus because the next part the third thing is friendship with Jesus means that he's going to correct us when we're wrong so if you want a life where God never tells you what to do don't be a Christian If you think that going to church and behaving is enough, don't be a Christian. Hebrews 12, 6 says that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. There is a connection between disciple and discipline. You can't have one without the other. And being a Christian, being a friend of Jesus, means that he will not let us live in our error forever. If you don't want God telling you what to do in your family life, in your business dealings, or in how you treat your neighbor, yes, even the one you don't like, if you don't want him meddling in your politics, or with who you're sleeping with, or, well, any area of your life, then don't be friends with Jesus. Because he's not going to let any dark corner of your life alone. He's going to correct us. Finally, friendship with Jesus is for everyone. Mary is acting like a disciple in this passage. And let me tell you, in the first century, 
Jew, Jewish women did not become disciples. There were no exceptions. What we need to understand in this passage is that Mary is functioning as her society expect, or Martha, excuse me, is functioning in her society as she was expected to. She was doing the appropriate thing, and Mary is breaking all the social conventions. But Jesus isn't interested in the appearance of doing the right thing. He wants people to be with him. And Luke's gospel shows us over and over again that all kinds of people can follow Jesus, including the ones that aren't supposed to or don't fit our preconceived notions of what a disciple looks like. Think about this. Who are the people that Jesus calls as his disciples? They're not from the educated classes. They're not the guys who made the cut in rabbinical school. They're fishermen and a political zealot. He praises the faith of a Roman centurion, the hated occupying force. Jesus condemns the religious good guys, and he eats with the sinners. He praises a Samaritan, he goes to the home of a tax collector, praises the faith of a widow, and he insults the teachers of the religious law. Oh, and then he goes and eats with them too. Discipleship is for everyone. Friendship with Jesus is for everyone, not a select spiritual few. In Mary's act of devotion in this passage, her willingness to break social conventions for the sake of friendship with Jesus is really convicting to me. Am I willing to break boundaries for the sake of Jesus? Or am I simply going along with what I'm supposed to do? Am I so busy doing things for Jesus that I'm not spending time with Jesus? Because it's only when I spend time with Jesus that I become like him. And all of those sitcoms speak to the need for true friends, but none of them compare to friendship with Jesus and what he offers. And let me be clear, it's going to cost you. But he's not content to leave us as we are. And he's going to have the hard conversation with all of us. Proverbs 18.24 says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And that's ultimately Jesus. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we willing to be friends with him? Because it's going to change everything. And as we close... I'm going to read from Hebrews 10, 22 to 25, and I want you to think of this as a prayer. A prayer that this would characterize both our hearts and our actions, what we believe and what we do. Hebrews 10, starting with verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Amen.